Um, okay, well, actually, real quick before we get into things. So Survivor, do y'all like actually sleep out there? Or do you go to like hotels overnight? Oh, no, it's it's definitely real. It is really real. It is exactly what you see. And it is um, it's rough. It's actually worse than what you see, I think. That's what I'm thinking, because I could never get through just living on rice and like having to win my dinner and everything. Oh, my gosh, that just sounds (laughs) I could never do it. Yeah, we didn't get rice on either of my seasons, actually. We just had to live off what we could find. So it was mostly coconuts and other stuff. I that would make me lose it, I think. And then amazing. You went on amazing race, right? Yep. 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 How was that experience getting to go everywhere? Yeah, it's miserable. You don't get to actually see anything. Yeah. <laughs> you just are being dragged around and you're at the whim of other people and it's like a complete whirlwind. So, uh, you know, zero out of 10 would not recommend if you actually want to see places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you're just at, you end up doing tasks the entire time doing like small jobs. For everyone. <laughs> no, but that's so cool though, that you are, you know, able to, um, just be relatable in that way. Like you already kind of have who you are out there. And, you know, as a young voter, I appreciate stuff like that. You know, I like to know who I'm actually voting for, you know, things like this go much, they go beyond policy and politics. And, you know, we want to elect someone um, who we actually like, honestly. (laughs) Um, Okay. So we'll just get started. Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Votcast, the political news podcast for Gen Z by Gen Z. I'm joined by my co-host, Justin. As always, if you want to learn more about Voters of Tomorrow and what we do, you can find us at votersoftomorrow.org and follow us at Voters Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, as well as follow our podcast at anchor.fm slash voters-of-tomorrow, or by searching Voters of Tomorrow on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Additionally, if you have a second to rate the podcast, we would really, really appreciate it. It helps us a lot. We have a very exciting guest today, and we can't wait to get into things. But before we do, Justin. We just wanted to thank you all again for taking time to listen to the podcast. Without people like you supporting us every day, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing. Gen Z has the chance to change the political landscape forever, but it all starts with getting involved. To learn more about Voters of Tomorrow or the political process, you can visit our website at votersoftomorrow.org. If you are able, we greatly appreciate any amount that you can donate. We rely on donations from people like each one of you to continue to do what we're doing and to be able to reach the largest amount of Gen Z as possible. If you can, please consider donating by going to votersoftomorrow.org and clicking on the donate button on the top right of the website. Now, like Ryan said, we have a very exciting guest with us today, a Manhattan public defender and outspoken advocate of New York's most vulnerable, currently running for Manhattan District Attorney. Please help us welcome Eliza Orleans. Ms. Orleans, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here with you. So let's just get right into this. DA election campaign. How's it going? What are some challenges that have presented themselves? Um, Just what's the general tea with that? Well, it has been certainly an intense year of campaigning, and we are now 35 days out from Election Day. And I can't even believe it, but we're in the home stretch. And certainly, uh, campaigning has been challenging in the midst of COVID. You know, we've had to utilize Zoom in ways that we never, ever anticipated going into this campaign. But we really have been able to reach so many people, which is evidenced by our grassroots movement. We just had our huge filing deadline. And I'm proud to say we have over 10,000 individual contributions, which is far more than anyone else in the race and more than most congressional candidates, frankly. I mean, this is something that we really have built a movement. And I think that 
DA races have started to come to the national forefront in terms of people recognizing how important they are and and the ways in which DAs make decisions that impact the lives of so many people on a day-to-day basis. It's interesting that you mentioned that you think it's coming to the forefront because I was curious how you envision your role in the office. You know, you have a lot of great policies um, that you want to push for in Manhattan. Do you think that can spark a movement that would kind of get copied in cities around the world or not the world, the country? Well, no, but that's actually not that wrong of a thing to say. I mean, we really do see this being a national movement, an international movement. And I do hope that my policies will be things that other people imitate in the best possible way. And I think right now, the Manhattan DA's office, which has been so punitive and regressive and carceral, you know, really just defaulting to jail and prison instead of thinking about alternatives to incarceration and addressing the underlying issues people are facing and declining to prosecute people and not holding them in jail on money bail that they can't afford for days, weeks, months, years on end. You know, these are things that have then been copied in a bad way by DA's offices across the country. And we could be doing quite the opposite because Manhattan, despite being, you know, a a rather small jurisdiction um, geographically, is is one that has massive impact and that people look to. And so, you know, once I become district attorney and we successfully implement these policies, I do think that it will have a national impact. But I would hardly say that I would be sparking a movement. You know, there are so many so many people who have paved the way for a public defender like me to run, you know, people like Larry Krasner and Chase Boudin and George Gascon and Rachel Rollins across the country, you know, in Los Angeles and Boston and Philadelphia and San Francisco, not 100% order. But um, really, they're the ones who, who sparked this movement and, and so many folks on the ground who've been doing this work for years. And I'm just honored to get to fight for everyday New Yorkers the same way I always have as a public defender. So we kind of mentioned TV stuff that you've done before the episode started. How were you able to really leverage the audience that you got from that and kind of turning it into something completely different? Well, amazingly, I think my audience has grown you know, since I've become a candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. I mean, definitely did I have somewhat of a following that I've always used to speak out about issues that matter and for activism, of course. But it turns out the thing that is really resonating with people is this calling out of injustices. And that's how I've seen my following grow for sure. But also it's given me access in some ways, you know, people who I might not have otherwise known um, or who might not have known about me knew me because of Survivor and then decided to attend, for example, the first big Zoom event we did was this Survivor fundraiser where I just called on all of my friends from the show. We had over 50 Survivor contestants. We had over 400 people on that first Zoom raiser that we did. It was so stressful. I was so overwhelmed. This was last (laughs) April. I had no idea how to use Zoom. We were like sitting there individually assigning breakout rooms because people joined with different names and different emails email addresses and the pre-assignments didn't work. I mean, it's so funny to think about how far we've come in the last 13 months, but really engaging people who maybe would never have donated to a local political candidate, especially in a jurisdiction that they didn't even live in, let alone a local DA race in Manhattan when they'd never even been to Manhattan, let's say, but for the fact that, you know, it was a survivor fundraiser. And then they came 
for Survivor, but then they stayed because they heard the issues that we were talking about. They heard me talking about these injustices that exist and how the Manhattan DA election really does have this national impact. And now some of the people who attended that first Zoom event are some of our best volunteers, are phone banking for us, are are doing text banks and friend banks and outreach and tweeting and, you know, who are out there fighting on behalf of these causes which maybe they wouldn't have, but for that survivor connection. It's really interesting that you mentioned that, you know, really two things coming into play. Yes, you had that audience from Survivor and you were able to leverage that to give you sort of a lift off or just a boost. But you also mentioned that social media and your activity on there has played a huge role in this election and you being involved and growing your audience and gaining new people. I believe you cut the rest of um, the candidates by like over a hundred thousand followers. <laughs> so you're killing it. Um. <laughs> I think, yeah, I certainly have more than, than the rest of the field combined. Yeah. But it was just interesting that you mentioned that because we always talk about social media. And uh, I also find it interesting that you're speaking about these people as if you know them really well, like they're a family on the last episode with Midas Touch we were talking about how they kind of took their base and made them a family and really got to know people and also be part of the part of their group and part of their life um, in a way that normally maybe politicians or advocacy groups or super PACs, uh, they usually don't. So could you explain to our, this is kind of going on another topic. Could you explain to our listeners what ranked voting is? A lot of our audience is younger and don't really understand that and it doesn't i don't really even understand it and i know it's not an occurrence everywhere so what is ranked choice voting well so i will start that i'll preface it by saying we don't have ranked choice voting in my race you can only vote for one candidate um it should be me i am the only public defender running uh, i'm the only person who has the experience in the trenches of having represented over three thousand people charged with crimes who couldn't afford to hire an attorney and really seeing the devastating effects of the current criminal legal system and the way in which the Manhattan District Attorney's Office operates. And I'm the only one who's authentically committed to changing them uh, and, and really bringing about this transformational change we so desperately need to see. So I'll start by saying that. So you only get one vote. Vote for Eliza Orleans. I'm the only public defender and I'm in the second position on the ballot but they've moved our race down to the bottom because the rest of the municipal elections in New York City uh, are ranked choice voting. And so that means that uh, you can rank up to five choices and you can utilize, you know, let's say you think someone is the best candidate, but that you don't think they have a shot at winning. You can still rank them number one if they're your favorite candidate and then you can vote for other people, you know, and ranked choice voting is supposed to be this more inclusive thing that really does allow women and people of color and other people who typically are excluded from politics allows them this opportunity to receive those votes in a way that isn't like, well, if I don't choose the white guy, my vote's not going to count. So, you know, I think it's it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, essentially, the way it works, and I loved this description of it when I first heard it because I'm like a very visual person, and so I could really visualize this, is picture rank choice voting. You rank your, your five candidates. Everyone ranks their five candidates. Let's say there are more than five. So everybody's ballots, picture it physically. They get distributed because this is before they had the software. This is what they did for some of the specials this, this past uh, you know election cycle. They put every ballot in a bucket, in a physical bucket, 
based on where your first choice went. Everybody's ballot sits in its bucket for the for the first choice. And then they look through the buckets, they count them, they have little tally counters behind each bucket. Whichever bucket has the fewest number of ballots in it gets redistributed. So you pick up that bucket and you then pull out every single one of those ballots and distribute them into their second choice ballots. And then third and fourth and fifth and so on until um, somebody gets to 50% of the vote. Um, if no one gets to 50% of the vote, think at the end, whoever has the most votes between the last two candidates wins, is my understanding. Anyhow, I don't need to be as well versed in it, even though I, I fundamentally do understand how it works. And I think that bucket analogy is is one that that resonates with people because they're like, oh, I get it. See, that clears it up a lot for me because I'm a visual person too. And now I'm just imagining if we did that on a national level, how that would quickly turn into like March Madness. (laughs) I know, right? So you talked a little bit about your career as a public defender. Can you just tell us more about that? Like what it was like day to day defending these people against the, the DA's office and why you are obviously so passionate about changing the DA's office? So... I mean, I often tell a story about a client of mine I represented my first year as a public defender because this is one that I think exemplifies so well the frustrations and heartbreak and anger I feel about the criminal legal system, about the ways in which the DA's office prosecutes cases. And it's a client of mine who I represented who was an assistant manager at a Gristidi's, which is a supermarket in lower Manhattan. And he had worked at the same grocery store for 25 years, made his way up to assistant manager. And one night he was working the closing shift and he was locking up the store at 11 o'clock at night. He bought two bags of groceries with his employee discount and locked up the store and walked over to the subway to head home. And he got on the uncrowded A train and he put his groceries on the seats next to him and prepared for his long ride home. And on his way uptown, he passed the 125th Street stop. And at that stop, two uniformed NYPD officers got on the train. They grabbed his groceries, dumped them to the ground and placed him in handcuffs and proceeded to take him to jail for the night for the crime of occupying multiple seats on a transit facility. Literally taking up two seats on the subway in the DA's office, got that case and decided to write it up to prosecute this man, you know, to charge him with a crime. It's so unjust. It's so wrong. It's not keeping us safe. It's wasting taxpayer money. And so many of the cases that come through are just like that one. These low level offenses that are not issues of public safety, that are just targeting certain people that are, you know, really not keeping us safe and and not what the focus should be of our criminal legal system. Yeah, that is really frustrating. I'm so happy to have someone like you in the race and on the scene that's that's passionate about these issues and wanting to make change because what you're setting out to do is absolutely amazing. It's just crazy that that can right? happen. Like, like, how is that even allowed? And you're right, like they're spending taxpayer money. Do you know money. it costs $1,266 a night to hold someone on Rikers Island? I mean, think about the mental health care, the housing, the food, the access to education, you know, all of these things we could be giving people for that amount of money for over $400,000 a year per individual to hold them in jail. Meanwhile, destroying their lives, you know, making them lose their homes, their jobs, their families, et cetera. Right. And after the fact, you know, they can't, I believe they would not be able to vote for anything anymore, right? Essentially, well, them out. in New York, we we have passed some some laws that 
should allow people to vote. Okay. All right. As you mentioned, that's just really like sad. I mean, I'd never be able to relate to that um, simply because, you know, I've never lived in New York. I've never been a target by the police um, simply because of, you know, who I am. Just anything, you know, I'm, I'm privileged enough. I don't, I, I've never gone home from my work at 3 a.m. and, you know, had to even experience something like that. And it's just crazy how somebody simply living their life gets punished and their life basically is completely ruined to the point of no return. It's like prison should be about reform, right? Like that's that's what it should be about. And how how are we reforming anybody? I, I'm trying to make my words come to sense. I guess what I'm really trying to say here is why I agree with you and why should we be spending money on to hold people in a facility where no where nobody actually becomes reformed? Hey everyone, this is a new news segment on the VOTcast called Justin and Ryan's Weekly Rants. Now let's get into it. Matt Gates is still involved in an ongoing sex trafficking investigation, accused of having sexual interactions with a 17-year-old. His former girlfriend has agreed to assist in the investigation. And I just want to say how absolutely disgustingly gross Matt Gates is. Um, never takes accountability for anything. Doubt he'll take accountability for this, but I think this time he actually may be forced to. Monday the 17th, the Supreme Court announced that it will hear a case concerning a Mississippi law that speaks to ban most abortions after 15 weeks. The court is currently a six-justice conservative majority, and people are worried that this means the conservative justices are signaling a willingness to overturn or resist Roe v. Wade. If you don't know what Roe v. Wade, we talk about it a lot in our previous podcast. You can check out season one for that. This group has been staying close to precedent in the past, but this could change with ease. States around the country, including Texas, Texas, Mississippi, and other mainly Southern states have been passing strict anti-abortion laws recently. I mean, this has set off a huge, like, kind of a trend here. Justices will hear the case in the next term. It starts in October and likely will deliver a decision in early 2022. After Devin Nunes failed last summer to force Twitter to unmask accounts dedicated to mocking him, the Justice Department took aim at one of those anonymous critics. In the last few months of the Trump presidency, the Justice Department used a grand jury to subpoena and to demand the identity of whoever was behind the critical account. Twitter filed a motion to squash it, and uh, Nunes failed multiple times to obtain information about his critics. So in the end, the DOJ's request was just withdrawn after Biden took office. Now let's get back into the interview. This I know you don't necessarily talk about this in interviews, um, so I'll just put it like pretty straightforward. How do you plan on holding the... Um, powerful and privileged people in New York accountable, um, whether it is the orange man or people like Harvey Weinstein, et cetera? Well, I think that it's something that really is an issue that I do talk about, in fact, because I think that there are kind of almost two sides of the same coin, which is the, you know, not wanting to over prosecute people for low level offenses, but that we should be holding people accountable who are committing serious crimes. And for far too long, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has turned a blind eye to people who are committing crimes when they have wealth, power, privilege, when they're running in the same circles as the DA, you know, you know, in their elite in their elite circles and and when these are his big campaign donors, et cetera. And so I think there is a, a huge concern of this, this pay to play situation that has for too long existed, which is also why I'm so proud to be such a grassroots campaign, a people powered movement where 
I'm going to be accountable to the people I've always been accountable, which is the people that I've spent my career representing as a public defender, which is, you know, just all people, not just those with wealth and power. You know, I would be remiss not to mention at this point that one of my opponents, um, you know, Miss Weinstein, who is uh, no relation, who is married to a billionaire hedge fund owner, is taking millions and millions of dollars from these, you know, one percenters from these millionaires and billionaires from Trump donors and Ted Cruz donors and Josh Hawley donors. And she is trying to buy this seat. And this is a person who is a career prosecutor who wants to uphold and perpetuate this unjust, cruel, racist system, who wants to maintain the status quo, who has praised the great legacy, the great tradition of the current Manhattan district attorney. And so I really think that, you know, there's so much that that really needs to change. But one of those things is holding those who are powerful accountable. And that includes corporate actors. That includes bad landlords. That includes the former occupant of the White House. If he committed crimes in Manhattan, he should be prosecuted for those, you know, not just getting a free pass the way the Manhattan DA's office has given him in the past. Um, And that also includes bad police officers because police officers have really operated in a way for so long that has shielded them from any accountability, whether it comes to the assaults and brutalizations and harassment we've seen by police officers in the streets or, you know, the falsifying arrests and the perjury in the courthouse where they walk in, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And then they lie under oath and people go to prison because of it. And even when those lies are uncovered and we get those cases dismissed and reversed and whatever, nothing happens to the police officers. They continue to go back on on the street and do the exact same thing over and over and over. And I will be a district attorney who does not tolerate that. So kind of along those lines, you know, you you mentioned holding police officers accountable. How do you what are your plans for for going about with the police officers union? Because, you know, we obviously know it's a a very strong union that has the power to to do everything you just mentioned and get these bad cops off pretty much scotch free. So what are your ideas for for handling that? The police union, as we know, you know, in New York and elsewhere is extremely powerful. We certainly will be facing a challenge when it comes to taking them on. But, you know, given that I'm someone who's never backed down from a challenge, that I've, you know, gone up against police officers my entire career, that I've taken on, you know, lots of powerful actors, taken on the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. That is also law enforcement, very powerful office. Um, my entire career, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm not going to shy away from a tough fight. And I've also seen just how badly people are are affected and hurt and, and the ways it destroys people's families and their futures when police officers misuse and abuse their power. But I have like a very detailed plan about police accountability on my website, elizaorleans.com. You know, I don't need to like recite the whole thing for you guys, but but this is something, an issue that I've, I've thought a great deal about and that I take extremely seriously. And um, all of uh, Miss Orleans stuff will be down below in the description, by the way, y'all. Um, website, social media handles and all that. The the uh, five borough defenders ranked you um, as the candidate who would do the least amount of harm as district attorney. A, what is your thoughts on that? Um, and then B, you do label yourself as the most progressive candidate in, in this election. And, and, and I'm going to quote you here. 
many people who identify as progressive prosecutors think making good changes that tinker around the edges of reform are sufficient. Could you just expand on that for me and how and what you are what what's different about you and how you're going to do things differently? Absolutely. And I think that it's really important to be having these conversations. So thanks so much for these thoughtful questions. But but really now it has become kind of popular to run as a progressive prosecutor. So all these people are now identifying as progressive and saying that, oh, you know, we should end mass incarceration. And a lot of them are career prosecutors who have spent their lives, their careers really perpetuating this system, you know, being the primary driver of mass incarceration of people of color. And so while they may want to make some changes, um, you know, before marijuana was just recently legalized, in New York, that's an example I used to give of like a tinkering around the edges. Oh, we should we should no longer prosecute marijuana cases. You know, yes, that's a good change. And it's so it's so long overdue. But really, that doesn't do enough. That doesn't do enough to address the harms of the criminal legal system. It doesn't do enough to end this crisis of mass incarceration, predominantly of people from vulnerable communities, you know, lower income folks, people of color, people who are LGBTQIA, people with disabilities. And so when you think about pushing for these reforms, it can't be someone who just wants to make these minor changes, but still wants to be this this prosecutor with this massive budget and this massive office and bringing all these prosecutions. You know, we need someone who wants to go in there and think about how to structurally make changes that actually work to dismantle and shrink the footprint of the district attorney's office and end that in intrusion into people's lives and to really think about how we can affirmatively surrender some of the power of that office. And so that's that's what I'm running. That's my platform. You know, that's what I want to do and and to really reduce the number of cases that come through and the number of people who are just coerced into into taking guilty pleas because that's what it really is. It's this plea factory that just cycles people through and cycles people through. And in fact, now that we have these these longitudinal studies because of people like Rachel Rollins, who's the district attorney in Boston, we have these studies that show that the, the declining to prosecute these low level offenses actually reduces the likelihood that someone will have future contact with the criminal legal system. So being a progressive prosecutor now like almost has like lost meaning, like we need someone who, who wants to go beyond that. And really, I want to center all the things that I've centered as a public defender, really focusing on human rights and human dignity and and addressing substance use disorder and mental health issues and and treating those as the public health issues they are and not just defaulting to incarceration um, the way that our criminal legal system and the Manhattan DA's office always have. So we have one final question. We've asked a lot of thoughtful questions, hard questions, hard questions to discuss. Uh, So to end on a lighter note, I know you're in the middle of a very hard campaign right now, but say you somehow find a completely free day all to yourself. What are you doing? How are you spending your time in Manhattan? What's your favorite thing to do? I have no hobbies. I have no life outside of my campaign. I do nothing but campaign Um, every waking hour. uh, I know my team is like puts like 
meal breaks on my calendar and it says, Eliza, please eat. Or it says like, walk Oscar. Like I've got Oscar right here. Oscar, you want to say hi? Oh, Get my sweetheart. so cute. My little baby. So yeah, spend time with my dog, you know, try and see friends, especially now as the weather's getting nicer and restaurants are opening, eat meals outdoors. And just, I mean, New York is back. So New York was never gone. I mean, you know, when Trump was calling an anarchist jurisdiction, et cetera. <laughs> but New York is really feels so vibrant and alive. And even though I'm working hard and campaigning, being out and about in the streets and talking to New Yorkers and for the first time in my life, getting recognized because I am a candidate for political office and not like, oh, I recognize you from Survivor is really amazing. Someone came up to me on Saturday and said, oh, I saw your ad. Like, you know, so like good, it's, you know? it's really fun. They're like, I'm voting for you. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. If someone ever said that to me and I was running, I would have probably cried on the spot. That's so, that just like, oh, that was probably such a feel good moment. I'm glad that that happened to you. Well, um, that's, that's honestly really it for this episode of the podcast. We, I really just want to thank you for coming on and giving us your time um, and answering some of these questions. Just Thank you. We really do appreciate yes. it. And uh, we hope you'll come back sometime. Um, Absolutely. Once it, as, you know. as district attorney, you'll have to come back uh, as Manhattan district attorney. Yeah. Exactly. Or even before then, you know, as as the as the um, nominee, the Democratic nominee for oh, yeah. district attorney, because we're going to have a general election in November. Well, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Um, Definitely. And, you too. And good, good luck, luck in this final stretch. Thanks. Thanks. And, um, you know, if people want to get involved, as I said, we're running a grassroots campaign. So every dollar matters. Um, You know, we we're relying on grassroots donations too. you know, I know you guys are too, but Eliza Orleans.com, E-L-I-Z-A-O-R-L-I-N-S.com. Give a dollar, $5, anything you can. It's a huge help to the campaign. And if you can't give money, donate your time. We have phone banks five days a week. We're doing those virtually. We have text banks and friend banks. We have ways in which you can reach out to your networks. And if you're in New York City, if you're in New York State, if you want to come to New York, we have 35 days. We're doing canvassing and door knocking. So sign up and get involved. Uh, We'd love to have you volunteer. Please get involved, y'all. I know we got a a lot of young feet out there that can do a lot of walking. (laughs) So please get involved. All of Miss Orland's stuff will be down below in the description, website, social media handles and all. And as she said, if you can't donate, I mean, we always encourage this too. Like just, you know, retweet goes a long way. You never know who you'd be reaching.